Office Hours Live is brought to you by Arroya, the ultimate cultivation platform. Unlock the power of crop steering through our state-of-the-art sensors and software. Repeat successful runs and scale faster than ever before. Schedule a demo today at arroya.io. All right, how's it growing, friends? Welcome to Office Hours, your source for free cannabis cultivation education. My name is Keisha, and I will be one of your moderators today. Mandy, how you doing over there? Hey, Keisha, how's it going? Huh, we're here for episode 61. We have a super big show today. Randy from Calicori, Maine is here on the show. We're about to walk you through one of our newest feature drops, irrigation control. We're also going live over on YouTube. So if you're logging on over there, make sure you keep ahead, uh, keep on sending us your crop sharing questions and I'll get those over to the team. If you're active on social media, be sure you're following us on all the platforms. So we're on Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, LinkedIn, and Social Club. But we want to get right into showing you guys this new feature. So I'm going to pass it back to you, Keisha. Thank you, Mandy. All right, if you're live with us here and you have a question, type it anytime in the chat. And if your question gets picked, we'll have you either unmute yourself or we will ask for you. Jason, what's up? How you doing? I'm doing great. Excellent. Good to see you, man. We have somebody special and we have Randy in the house. Tell everybody about our special guest. Yeah, this is uh, Randy Wentel. He's the facility director and owner of Calcory Farms in Maine. We're really excited to have him on the show today. Uh, we're going to kind of jump right in and talk about the open sprinkler irrigation integration that we've released with Arroya that came live today for the public. Any users that are using Arroya can go ahead to the devices page and set up their open sprinkler controller jump into our help docs and uh, they'll walk you through getting started pairing your, your device with the Arroyo system. Um, Randy's been using Open Sprinkler through Arroyo for the last few months, been doing a great job testing it and giving us some feedback on, on how we can make it uh, as successful as possible. So without further ado, Randy, maybe you wanna tell us a little bit about um, the process of using op Open Sprinkler through Arroyo and how it's been helpful for you. Yeah, cool. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here today, guys. Um, yeah, we've uh, we've been using Open Sprinkler now for quite a few months, probably uh, three or four harvests under our belts now. You know, running that as our uh, you know actually controlling all the irrigation. I think um, they they asked me to do one room for 30 days, and I think I just jumped on and added all the rooms the first day after I saw it working a bit. So. Um, yeah, it's been really fun. We, we've we've uh, integrated it right in with our existing setup with almost no changes required. We did have to update some firmware, but literally just slid right into what we had. Um, I was kind of surprised that you guys are including it uh, for free. And to be honest, I, I thought I started asking when I inquired. I go, all right, how do I sign up? How much do I pay? You know, uh, but it was it's it's a feature ad, so it's really cool. Very very cool. Yeah, and uh, were you using Open Sprinkler before we reached out to you for some of that testing? Yeah, we had switched over to that. You know, we started out with another irrigation controller that was limited a bit in how much it could run, and then we discovered Open Sprinkler, um, and and it started using that to control our rooms before we had heard. And I think actually when we were um, when when your team was on site for our case study, I believe it was Christian saw the Open Sprinkler on the wall and was like, "Hey, look, we're we're about to be doing something with that." So it was really cool to to get an insight into that and start working with it pretty early on, actually. Awesome. So, um, for any of our watchers that aren't familiar, Open Sprinkler has been around for I think almost a decade now. Uh, it's a, a sprinkler controller that a guy developed in his uh, aftertime, uh, just because he didn't have a great solution as far as any of the existing irrigation controllers on the market. It offers ext 
stream flexibility as far as how many irrigations you want to do, uh, how many times, or excuse me, how long you want to do those irrigations. And it, it's really become fairly prolific in the, the hydroponics industry, um, you know, whether that be cannabis indoor or other types of uh, high frequency irrigation. So, you know, one of our choices for first doing open sprinkler as the uh, initial integration was the fact that it is open. So it gave us a really easy opportunity to develop the product. Uh, some of the corporations that we've tried to work with uh, to get irrigation control out in the market, uh, it's been a little bit resistance, maybe not quite as uh, easy to get the programming out to push irrigations to those. And, and the open sprinkler system was relatively simple as far as making sure that this was reliable, easy to use, and just something that you could do from home. And Jason, can you tell us a little bit about what this integration means for Arroyo customers? Yeah, ab absolutely. So what this is doing is it's bringing the capabilities of your open sprinkler and pushing them right into Arroyo. So most of our cultivators get fairly tired of opening different interfaces for all the different types of uh, control aspects, monitoring aspects, compliant aspects. And uh, one, you know, one of our goals at Arroyo for as long as the project has, has existed is to get this stuff into one interface. So it's much easier. We've got one login, we've got secure access, and you're not trying to flip-flop and remember what your irrigation parameters look like in respect to what your water content parameters look like. You can have it all up on one screen. Um, you know, one of the big improvements as far as using Arroyo for your open sprinkler as well is you don't have to worry about doing a, a VPN or opening up ports so that you can access the open sprinkler remotely. Uh, our gateway is connecting to that open sprinkler on the local area network at your facility. And so, you know, by keeping that loophole closed up on the open sprinkler, you don't have to expose your network to any unnecessary risks out there. Uh, you could be security through uh, the Royal login. Fantastic. Well, Randy, you want to talk us through like what some of the benefits you're seeing with this feature? Yeah, sure. I mean, um, the biggest thing was was really taking, you know, I'll just kind of start to my, I have a couple guys that work with me that really run the grow, DJ um, running the grow and, and Jeff that are on the ground each day. And I am responsible for the irrigation and the environment and as well as manufacturing and running the business and a lot of stuff. So a lot going on because we're a pretty small team. So a big thing was exposing them to kind of the inner workings, not just in my brain, but the open sprinkler, right? Which has always been a bit of a daunting user interface. Um, even when I could give them access to it, it, it wasn't easy to understand what was going on. And it's also easy to accidentally break everything um, or accidentally run things the wrong way. So that's been a big thing for me because I'm all about um, sharing all the knowledge with the team, right? I don't want to be the one holding on to all this stuff. I want to take a vacation from time to time um, and things like that. And I want them to grow better as growers too. So they, they now can understand why we, why we irrigate the way we do and they see it um, and can see ways to make changes with it. That was really huge for me. Um, and it continues to be, we continue to learn from it. And soon, you know, we'll start handing over some of the range to say, Hey, after you log those runoff numbers, make the irrigation change instead of me, making the irrigation change that they essentially did all the work and the math for anyways, right, right then and there. So um, that's great. Um, like, like you meant, the, the other big thing is just that having it embedded in the interface, um, the, 
the information having the information available is important. It wasn't wasn't readily available before, so just even having it in your existing Arroyo interface that everybody was already using, um, it became a no brainer. Uh, they, they they now they're always on that irrigation tab and they always know what's going on. So very cool. I uh, I think before the show you were talking about a, a trip you'd made away from the garden. How would everything go? They probably don't get away from the garden very much, but there's everything. Yeah, uh, I- Good. I took probably my first vacation, you know, in like four, geez, four years, maybe. I don't know. It was a long time. Um, and, and every, I joked that everything was better when I was gone, probably because I wasn't there tweaking and making changes to the HVAC and doing everything right that we always say we shouldn't be doing. Um, but it went off without a hitch. You know, what's cool is the guys are, had already been trained before this to, um, log that runoff data so that if there are any changes that I need to make or anything I need to be aware of, I was able to react to it. And because I could just, edit the i did edit irrigation while i was in florida on the wi-fi there right it's the same as being here at my house or at the grow um we can we can do it anywhere so um we luckily you know knock on everything didn't have any disasters but also we it's kind of running itself right now with all the systems in place and by design you know super cool and well you're you're really tech savvy you have a super small team too yeah, yeah, I think that, you know, we have um, about 1,200 square feet of flower canopy, and we have one guy full-time in the garden, DJ, and then a half, he gets half help from Jeff there, half-time help, and Jeff also is doing all the washing for our hash company, right? So we're literally washing all that same flower into hash. I do all the rosin squishing. Um, we have a kitchen team, so also running this grow of that, you know, the, the, the 1200 square feet of canopy, just, you know, that's a lot of work too. So we have to have these tools in place. Um, you know, I mentioned it in the case study too, that I, I made it a mandatory to when we started the facility, which I know is unique. A lot of people do, do this as an upgrade. Um, but I said, we got to have it, um, because the tech makes it a big difference. So. Nice. Yeah, it's awesome to see what you guys are doing out there and their, um, their kitchen, their hash kitchen. Oh, it's, it's like the coolest kitchen I've ever able to experience so that's right yeah sorry we put i love talking about because it's our goal is to be able to you know i want everybody to have a solventless experience whether they smoke it vape it or eat it and our edibles are we use premium rosin in the edibles and stuff like that because it makes it a better time it makes everybody have a better experience so um and that's what we're growing for we grow for the hash here it's kind of cool we do some flour we dabble we always say we're a hash company with a flour problem and we dabble in the flour we have a little addiction to that you know it's mandatory but the hash is what's really what we're doing it for. So. You guys do pre-rolls too, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's cool. Yeah, I um, when I was up in Maine, I was able to pick up some of your dots. And, um, yeah, the experience, very, yes, it was good. Awesome. <laughs> Did I cut you off, Keisha? No, no, not at all. I'm loving hearing this. I clearly need to travel to Maine. I think that's the universe keeps telling me this now week after week. Um, but, Randy, yes, yeah, since you're such a tech person you want to show us maybe some screens from your irrigation experience that you really that gets you really jazzed up sure sure yeah yeah no this is the stuff that i love i mean like i said this i i get all excited about this but it's because we use it every day and it you know it makes our lives that much easier so that's why i get all i get like a little kid about it but um this is the normal view right of our and then we can see our irrigation here built right in which is huge right before this was literally a whole other website with a IP address and a weird password and no integrated logins or anything like that. Um, now this is just, you can, we're using the harvest groups to actually schedule all of this out. So we have, you know, our harvest groups already defined with recipes to define our schedules and it 
puts the irrigation right in there. I can show you that in a second, but this is kind of like our daily view, right? You're, you're typically looking at the dashboard um, and then jumping into a room to see what's going on. And then what's nice now is being able to pair those watering events with what's going on in the room at the same time and see, you know, this is a room that's about to finish stretch, but it's all right in here. Um, and rather than having to go to another interface, I can click right in and start editing stuff right here on the fly. Um, and it saves it and publishes it to OpenSprinkler and you get a timeline view. Um, I could go on and on for days, I should, you know, about how awesome this stuff is, but you can see here, like you define the, the, the drippers that you're using. So you can actually see some accurate volumes and things like that and know what's really going on. So anyways, yeah, this is, this has been huge for us really just being able to see this, um, even as just understanding, like I said, actually, as given that we're such a small team, one of the big things, and you know, and some people laugh at us, but we we mix tanks a lot sometimes middle of the day, right? We have, you know, we're a small team, only can do so much, so we have to go and say, hey, what time is the next feed? You know, and just just relaying that information is a is a huge thing. Or when can I test my drippers again? When can I collect runoff? That's all now right there, um, rather than. Hey Randy, can you open the Open Sprinkler app and tell me? <laughs> you know, which is a little bit more difficult. So nice, and I, I'm really excited to see y'all are using the Harvest Group schedules. Uh, I think this is for me one of the biggest features is that in Arroyo, you got to use crop steering when we're thinking about the plant life cycle. We're going to be modifying our irrigations, and in Open Sprinkler, I've seen people with tons of schedules that they're turning on and off and trying to manage the the calendar as far as when they're activating the next schedule and turning the last one off and uh those harvest group schedules that you've got set up when you get to the next irrigation phase it's going to load up that uh that next irrigation template that you have built out for your harvest group cycle it's really cool that's been huge i think that one of the things that was huge for me is is i had a spreadsheet that had to try to track all of this each day right like you were just saying which program do i turn on that's the other thing it was i tried to save these programs so i could use them later and open sprinkler would be loaded with all of this mess of stuff of what which one do i turn on um and now it i can copy it from run to run and we have a baseline of what works and we can start from there right we do a pretty basic setup where you know, your typical Athena shop, or I don't know if I'm supposed to say that, but you know, you're, you're, we just run our 3.0 EC in very simple phases, but now I can come in here and define for this harvest group, P1, P2 schedules and see what that's going to look like. And then I, I don't have, it's funny, we are switching to a new phase tomorrow, but we already dismissed the notification, but you get this nice notification that pops up and says, hey, starting tomorrow, this group is going to change into make these irrigation changes. Do you want to review, verify, things like that? So I actually did that this morning with BJ and showed him, you know, we're on the TV showing, hey, this is coming up. These are the changes being made. Um, and you just have that acknowledgement right there, um, which is pretty cool. So this is the exciting part too, for sure. It's just being able to pre-plan this out. You know what works, just like with everything um, in the Arroyo platform with doing the targets and alerts in different phases. Yeah, and you know, we were talking just earlier here before the show started that we're seeing pretty good adoption already today with um, dozens of our clients integrating this. And uh, maybe you just want to tell us a little bit about how how the setup went? Was it pretty easy to do it? Um, you know, did you have to get uh, your IT teams involved? What, what did that look like? 
it was very easy. Um, the uh, the open sprinkler uh, firmware update might have been the most difficult part, and um, that wasn't really that difficult. You just go to the web UI and you choose the file and upload it, and it's done. Um, and miraculously, it doesn't actually destroy everything. It actually kept working. It was great. So that was kind of the scariest part, um, but it was a, a no-brainer. Adding it in here, it just kind of took the IP and password, and it uh, did everything. It was uh, really surprising, actually, how easy it was to set up. And then once you're in, once you have that set up, you never really go back to this. This is the first time I've probably been to the controller setup screen in, in months, but you define the channels um, right in here, you know, what you're actually using on your open sprinkler and hit save. And then from there, you're just doing scheduling. Very cool. Yeah. And we've, we've been built in the ability to select channels as master channels. So right in there, you're just allocating which channels in the open sprinkler are tied to the zones in your facility. And then you don't really have to remember anything about the channels from then on. Yep. That was the other thing is trying to relay what, um, bench was what, if the naming was inappropriate in open sprinkler, now it's all unified by having it tied to the Arroyo zones, which we're already using. So that was pretty cool too. It's all, uh, you know, part of it is that we're already using the Arroyo platform. You know, when you're using that platform, it's, it makes it a lot easier just to add these couple things in when it's more familiar. Very cool. And, uh, you know, with, with all the other parameters in our system, we have it set up so you can get some notifications if you do run into issues. Uh, I encourage anybody that is setting up with the open sprinkler, sign up for those text notifications or sign up for the push notifications and, and make sure that, uh, you know, you're keeping an eye on, on if anything's going wrong. I will say, I do want to give a quick plug as a former IT guy. Um, the fact that you guys notify if the open sprinkler goes offline was amazing because I've had incidents where somebody hit a power strip and literally almost killed the whole room because the open sprinkler got unplugged and there was no notification that it was offline until we realized the plants were drooping. Uh, actually, I shouldn't even say that. I think we noticed it first in Arroyo. And then I went, what the heck's going on? And went and checked the room um, and saw drooping plants. Um, but that is a big thing too, is just knowing that everything's online. Is on the screen here, I have one too, that knowing that this, you know, like this is me actually manually running because we're in late stretch and uh, trying not to have the plants dry out too much and get this little runoff as possible. But now I can see, for example, if somebody on site had done something, ran the irrigation ports without me knowing, I can see what happened right here. Um, and, and that's really cool too. Keeps everybody accountable um, for this. Yeah, about a crisis being averted, right? Yep, yep. And then you were talking earlier about um, connecting the irrigation schedule to your recipes, Randy. So basically every time you run each of those cultivars, the irrigation schedule is already set up. You don't have to do anything different unless the plant tells you to do something different, right? Correct. Yeah, yeah, it's been really cool. Um, we've started, it actually forced us in a good way to break out our harvest groups to for each strain as well. So we're getting a bit more granular control. Um, before we might lump stuff in a bit more, but now that we, you know, the way that we operate our growers, we have each room has three benches and three zones. Um, and we try to keep a strain per bench, which is really hard to do even these days. But um, when we do, when we really are good at it, it's a strain per bench. And that's, um, that's what we're able to do here easily. Yeah, that's very cool to see. You know, when you think of a harvest group, typically, you know, historically we were thinking, all right, the, group of plants that have the same growth timeline and they're going through the, the same parameters. And so when you're and you 
tailor your irrigations to strain specifics. And it's really cool to see that now you can start making even deeper comparisons as far as, hey, this is how it was irrigated this time. It's separate how we're irrigating next time. Maybe we need to compare the, the results and the growth parameters to those changes. This is a good example here where I have um, three different, very different feeders in the room. Superboof is a heavy feeder. It likes a lot of water, especially at this stage. Cushman's hates it, and Creep Cream Cake is kind of in the middle. So I was able to set this up knowing from our last runs, you know, knowing that I keep having to go to open sprinkler each time and change these settings, say Superboof is a three-minute, you know, irrigation event versus two minutes on everybody else. So that was a good, good example where it was pre-populated that way. Whereas Cushman's might have been a one minute or a minute and a half instead of three minutes. And it was done from the beginning. Um, and we knew that because of the strains. And how much historical data did you have to pull from to kind of get those ideal benchmarks for irrigations for each of those strains? Well, to be honest, we didn't really have it until I put it in here and it became obvious. That was me kind of brain, you know, getting that out of my brain of knowing, hey, for Superboof, I tend to add more. But this was really putting it in writing, if you will, right, of saying, this is a fact, this event happens, and this is what we do. Um, and that's what's kind of cool to see, too, because now we've learned a lot about um, how our room behaves based on our irrigation. That was another thing that we kind of all learned through this, which we kind of we knew that much water you put in, you got to take out, humidity, things like that. But then to literally see as you feed and seeing humidity spikes and seeing the DHU kick on and things like that, that we start to learn a lot more about our facility and how everything operates. And I always say I want to have proof of it, right? Um, we had a lot of bro science in this industry that's like, uh, Dan said to do this and John said to do this, so I do this. And it's like, I want to see it science. I want to see it written down and, and have proof that it works that way. So. I couldn't agree more with you. Uh, you know, as I, I think you know, it's really, really important to bring the grower's touch in, but it's always important to kind of analyze some of the traditional practices with the, the scientific evidence uh, that either supports or, or, you know, try to understand, all right, you know, well, I saw this as a grower, you know, what would be one of the explanations that I saw that? And sometimes you need to dig down a few different paths of science to get down to the understanding, all right, this is actually why I saw it. Uh, it's, that, it's that strategy that I consider limiting variables. The, you know, the less that we have to consider when we see an unexpected result is going to make it easier to know what made that result happen. Amazing. I love it. Yeah. Randy, anything else you want to point out to us on, on one of your screens? I love seeing these graphs. Um, I don't think so. I think the, uh, you know, it depends on what people can read, but this was the great, uh, this one has feeds in progress because we have P2s going. So you can see the next irrigation starts in 25 minutes and 17 seconds. Like it's very precise. It knows what's going to be happening. I could disable it from right here if I wanted to. Um, it gives me the, my dry back duration of 13 hours total irrigation time of 10 hours, right? Those are numbers that normally we're calculating manually. I mean, it's not hard math, but it's still something that we have to do and we don't have to do anymore. Um, it's just seeing it there. Well, and that saves time. I mean, when you add that up cumulatively, right? Big time. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. Thank you for showing us your, your screens. We love it when growers loop us into their operation over there. Um, Jason, before we get to questions, is there anything else you want to add about irrigation? Let people know. Um, 
Yeah, you know, for the people that are used to using the Open Sprinkler, uh, get it set up with your Arroyo system. Should be pretty easy. Uh, a couple things, you know, kind of keep in mind is one, it does need to be on the same local area network as your Arroyo gateway. Um, good practice you probably should have already done with your Open Sprinkler is try and set a static IP on there so that it reliably connects on your network. Uh, even if you do go through some network changes, reboot your router, uh, have, you know, phones connecting on and off from your Wi-Fi. Um, yeah, make sure you get the the right firmware on your system. We do have the documents, our help documents that specify which versions of the firmware that you need. Um, and if you haven't started using Open Sprinkler and you want to want to get started, get, you know, go out, and get yourself a, a Open Sprinkler and and read through their setup documentation to get it on your Wi-Fi and and start uh, start playing with it a little bit. Uh, after you're comfortable, then then I think it's time to get it implemented in your garden. That's it. Yeah. Give it a try, folks. Let us know what you think. We want your feedback. Um, all right. We're going to get to some live questions here. And, you know, Randy, if you have any insight, we love it when our guests are on. They have some insights to these questions. We appreciate it. So, Ran so Mandy, Randy and Mandy. Sorry. <laughs> love it when that happens. <laughs> Send yeah. it over to you, Mandy. Yeah, we do have a couple of questions related to our new feature, irrigation control. Uh, so I'll just put those out there. Baby got drybacks wrote in and she wants to know if I don't use Arroyo yet, how can I get started with your new irrigation control feature? Uh, if you don't use Arroyo yet, then you'll need to get Arroyo. So uh, easiest way to, take, to get a demo and a quotes, jump onto Arroyo.io. And in the top right, I think it's a requested quote or, or get a demo button. That'll get you signed up with our, our sales team and they'll walk you through the system, get you an idea of what it costs and, and the advantages that you can get by uh, implementing Roy at your facility. Perfect. Yeah, sign up for a demo, y'all. Um, so to our other question about irrigation control, Dink Mike wants to know, we have multiple facilities. How does irrigation control feature, how did your irrigation control feature work with larger operators? How does that help them? Yeah. So just like use the drop down to access the different facilities across the um, organization, those controllers will be available on that facilities page. So let's say you've got three open sprinklers in Nevada and maybe five in LA and another 10 down in Adelanto. Uh, those can all be available just through the drop down up top. You go into the facility and your facility will have the open sprinklers you've configured for it. Awesome. And it sounds like it gives them more visibility into their grows and um, all the stuff that we talked about before. Um, so yeah, guys, go check it out. We have all the resources over on our Instagram right now. So a, awesome. a good example of how that's also helpful is let's say, we, we do have that uh, that big stack of open sprinklers that I talked about across the country that we're trying to, to access. Well, with Arroyo, we've got all of our data monitoring and, you know, let's say 17 or 18 or 35, there's no limit to the number of open sprinklers that you can get um, connected with Arroyo. And so let's say I had 17 open sprinklers and three facilities. Well, in other data monitoring systems and through open sprinkler directly, that would be like 17 passwords and logins that you'd have to do, uh, or 20 logins that you'd have to do in order to control that stuff. With Arroyo, you can access it all one login, one interface page, anywhere from anywhere that you have internet access from. Yeah, 
Well, that in itself, wow, that would stop a mental breakdown for me. Um, awesome. Just to touch on that too, is the audit logging, right, of having the journal of when changes are made so that it's, you know, especially, you know, like I said, we're a small team, but with larger teams, it's even more important because you're going to have more people accessing the system and potentially want to, you know, have more people doing things, making changes, and you can actually have, you know, a record of what's been changed and things like that there, which is huge. Yeah, I, this actually kind of reminds me of a, a question we get from a lot of people as well is, you know, what, what happens with my irrigations if my internet goes down? Um, and so the way that Arroy is integrating with the open sprinkler is it's actually pushing those programs to the open sprinkler, uh, to the open sprinkler's memory. So just like those programs are stored on the open sprinkler right now, it doesn't need internet. It's going to it's going to continue running the irrigations that were programmed uh, before it has lost internet. So that's just all saved locally on the open sprinkler RAM. Uh, anytime that uh, there's a change to the irrigation schedule, where it pushes that change and it gets saved on the open sprinkler. So if your internet goes down, no worries. Things are going to still irrigate how they did before the internet went down. We love having that peace of mind. Wow. Also that backup. That's amazing. You guys, um, yeah, let me know if there's anything else we want to add to that. But we do have some questions coming in over on YouTube, so I'm going to go ahead and launch into those. Um, so can you explain the difference between soil EC and runoff EC? Uh, sure. So the immediate difference, obviously, is soil EC is typically be taken from uh, uh, something like a Teros 12 or, or some of the other uh, competitor sensors on the market that's in situ. So that's exactly what the roots are feeling at that point in time. Uh, given that the roots are taking up the the whole media or you know well well established into that that planter um, runoff EC is going to be typically a liquid measurement that we're looking at by putting an EC probe into a, a runoff tray. Nice, distinct, and uh, we love a, we love a good breakdown. Um, our second question came in. Um, so this is a crop string question. My soil EC reads 2.0, but runoff reads 8.0. Um, we're running two gallons hydroponic pro mix pot, measuring soil EC with Hannah soil meter and measuring runoff with a blue lab EC pen. Any advice? Um, yeah, that's, that's a little bit strange. Typically in most applications, I'll see the uh, substrate, the in-situ EC to be a little bit higher. Um, you know, that being said, I would definitely recommend, you know, checking both of those sensors to make sure that they're calibrated well and that they're, they're reading the, the actual values that you'd anticipate. Um, that's where I would start, but usually we're going to see those to be quite a bit closer together. Um, sometimes that substrate EC is quite a bit higher if, you know, we're not pushing very much runoff and we're letting our, our uh, generative stacking irrigation strategies take place to reduce the osmotic differential between the plant and the substrate. Awesome. Thanks for your questions over there on YouTube and let us know if you have any more, but uh, until then I'm going to pass it back to Keisha for our Instagram questions we got in this week. Thank you, Mandy. Just a reminder for everybody who's on with us, be sure to drop your questions in the chat. We got Jason in the house and we got Randy in the house. So a lot of expertise is represented. We've gotten a few questions on EC. So that seems to be a theme. Dave Ray wrote in, um, will having low substrate EC hurt yield substantially? I've been struggling to stack EC over four or five in general in one gallon cocoa quick fills. I have some strains I know will hit over two pounds per light with LED and having trouble hitting that with HPS. 
Also, is it odd that I see EC stay pretty level when I have large 20-hour drybacks when gen searing early flower? Is that due to low, low substrate EC around 2.5 in this example? There's a lot of data in there, but what do you, what do you guys think? Yeah, Randy, let's, let's hear what you think, man. And if I need to repeat anything, Randy, I can. Let me know. It's, so we've got... Yeah, can you, can you explain? I, I kind of, yeah, if you can... Yeah, let, let, me, let me start with the first question. So Daybreak is struggling to stack EC over four to five in general. He's dealing with one-gallon cocoa quick fills. Um, he has some strains he knows will hit over two pounds per light with LED, but he's having trouble hitting that with HPS. Let's start there. Well, the, the main difference there is going to be environment, right? With the HPS lights kind of putting, changing the environment there. Um, you know, that's kind of one of the key things that we learned through, through this is having the correlation between your, your leaf VPD and what's going on in the room and transpiration and how they'll feed. Um, and that directly has an effect on your drybacks, right? If the plants can't, um, and, and Jason, you'll have to just kind of get the more scientific version of this, but if the plants can't, you know, sweat off or do whatever they're doing, then they're not going to feed. Um, and then they're going to have a poor root zone and they're not going to like what they're getting. They're not going to stack EC, et cetera. We're dealing with that now in a room right now. The one of the rooms I was sharing is having our pH is super, and our runoff is super low and we're kind of having some issues stacking and we're in one gallon pots and it's, I, you know, I think a lot of that uh, ties in with that transpiration. I don't know if that's that's the right way to r refer to it, but yeah, I'm I'm glad you pointed that out because I was trying to think about the difference between LED and, and HPS as far as you know in relationship to EC. Usually, we run uh, LEDs a little bit higher than the HPS, and so I think you nailed it. That's my guess is the environment hasn't been optimized in those HPS rooms yet. So, um, you know, that being said. Uh, my guess is if you do have the option to run LEDs or HPS, you're, you're definitely going to benefit from increasing your ECs in those uh, LED rooms as well. So get the environment tailored in in the HPS rooms. And uh, a lot of times if we don't see that EC starting to stack up when we're running long, uh, long ear, or dry back windows, you know, big decreases in water content overnight, usually that's either due to a little too much runoff, which is pushing our EC too low every time that we're irrigating um, that are just a, an overall low EC, whereas our plants are eating up as much nutrients as we're putting in there. So there's not much uh, concentration buildup from any leftover nutrients. There is not enough leftover nutrients to do so. Great insights. Okay. And then, so Dave Ray had the second question. Is it odd that I see EC stay pretty level when I have large 20-hour drybacks when gen steering early flower? Is that due to low substrate EC around 2.5 in this example? Looks like looks like Randy and I are unanimous They're on this one. Their heads. I, it's funny. I, it's uh, not funny. Actually, I shouldn't say it's not funny because I'm dealing with the same thing uh, in our flower room one, where you know we're seeing our we have one that just the EC will not rise in that thing, right? And we've been we're at day eighteen of twenty one of our typical stretch cycle, and you know we're just not hitting numbers on that bench. Other benches are creeping up, you know, doing the, 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 their morning rise with the long drybacks. Um, so, it, and, and I think that what I've noticed about that plant is they, um, 
the the same thing with our runoff. The, I guess the first thing I would check is make sure you're getting runoff a collection out of those plants and checking what the pH is and the EC is, um, because what we're seeing is our pH is super low, under five, which is not good at all. So we're trying to flush out that root zone and kind of get that those plants geared back on track, um, which is a tough thing to do at this stage. But it's you got to kind of get the plants healthy and um you know do what's best for them so one of the things that we're doing is we're going to increase the ec a little bit from our feed probably and add um, a little bit more water to try to flush out what's ever there and give the plants more of what they need um, and hope that they pick that up um, without losing too much ec in the soil by really flushing them down to our feed ec so that is a struggle with those first few weeks i don't i still don't know the best way to do it across all strains some strains are easier than others you know, we have some of our easy, easy strains that just take any environment. Um, but, you know, like we were talking about before, that transpiration in the VPD is really important and, and will affect your root zone more than you might think. Yeah. And if we want to break into that just a little bit more, you know, when we're thinking about transpiration and how the environment is affecting the plants, we're talking about stomatal conductance. And, you know, most of the time, is, so if uh, other than CO2 changes, if, you know, if our CO2 is constant in the room, we always want our, our stomates to be as open as they possibly can be. And, you know, when we talk about leaf temperature and uh, vapor pressure deficits, VT, VPD, that's, that's really what we're shooting for is we're trying to optimize that stomatal conductance. And when we're, you know, our stomates are fully open, we're pulling as much water as possible and allowing that plant to get sufficient nutrients photosynthesized to the complete limits of how much light they're getting. And uh, so, you know, the reason that we're always targeting for a specific VPD is because if our VPDs are too low, uh, the room is humid and those plants aren't going to transpire as much. Um, conversely, if our VPD is too high, the environment is dry and the plants are actually going to hang on to some water so that they don't begin to wilt. And so it's a, it's a sweet point. We're looking at a, a parabolic curve as far as, um, stomatal conductance versus VPD. Yeah, so one thing, that kind of question that I had along this, and I think it applies to this, in the first, those, those stretch weeks, right, when we're trying to do longer drybacks, or just generative, when we're trying to be generative, is it, what's more important, the dryback duration or the dryback percentage, or are they completely independent of each other, or, you know, what is that? So, like? you know, they're going to be related. Uh, I'm always shooting for a dryback percentage, and obviously it's going to depend on the, the size of the media, uh, how big the strain is, and, and where where it's going. But you know, typically I'm shooting for anywhere of 15 to 25 percent dryback if I can. You know, especially by week two and a half, three of our generative stacking. You know, that that first week can always be a trick, especially if we're just rooted into the new flower media. A lot of times you're not going to see that big of a dryback, and so. People, a lot of clients will get worried to be like, Hey, I'm, I'm not getting those drybacks yet. And it's, you know, it's going to take a little bit of time. Those, that first week of flowers, usually one of the trickiest and, and you got to stay on your toes, be dynamic about your irrigations to make sure that we're not getting the roots to stagnate, but we're also providing enough more irrigation every day to keep up the growing demands of that, that plant. Um, to, to dig into that a little bit more, you know, if, if we're thinking about, um, dryback uh, percentage as our Y value, you know, how much water content did we lose? Well, if we, if we run a little bit longer dryback window, we're always going to see a little bit longer or a little bit greater dryback percentage. Um, you know, water loss happens due to transpiration mostly, and then some amounts of evaporation. 
right? And so anytime that we go an hour more, if we're losing, you know, 1% water content per hour, we go one more hour, we're going to lose one more percent of water content. You know, it's kind of a great tool set for growers to optimize what their, um, what their constraints are. You know, if they are in a smaller substrate, like a one gallon, you know, sometimes they'll need to run two or three hours of their, their P1 irrigation uh, window just to try and, and help reduce how long we're drying back for. Uh, you know, especially we see this in ripening a lot of times. Um, and then if they're in like a, you know, larger, maybe we're in a two gallon um, or larger than that, a lot of times we'll just try and shoot for that 23 hour dryback window and, and optimize, you know, maximize how much you know, water content fluctuation we see. That's cool. Yeah. Cause that's what we're seeing right here. The total irrigation time for our P1s right now is three hours, 21 minutes, dry back 20 hours, 39. And that's because we're in a one gallon pot, some big plants. Um, and then, you know, they're pushing them to the limit under LEDs. So. Yeah. You know, one of the challenges that seems like we encounter over and over is, uh, you know, people in Hugo's and they're like, well, I just can't, do generative steering and keep my irrigations up or they will be doing generative steering and we'll see those 15% water contents before they get to irrigate next time. And, you know, with, with Rockwell, you just can't do that because it's not as forgiving and in cocoa, you can get away with it a little bit easier because it's ability to resaturate. Um, but having, you know, an appropriate size media and understanding the limitations of that in respect to your plant size is probably step one. Well, might be step one and a half after you evaluate your environment or environmental parameters to optimize those. I just told somebody that today. They told me that all rock wool weed that they've ever had was, you know, bad. And I said, that's because they dried it back too hard and didn't know how to grow it properly. It's not, a, you know, we're talking about rock wool versus cocoa. They're both, you know, very similar mediums as far as taste is going to go and things like that. So what often happens is what you just described, right. Is burning those plants out. Um, and, that's not necessarily a knock on the medium. Yeah. You know, and we also talk about this as well, you know, but Rockwell versus cocoa, like Rockwell is going to be a lot less forgiving. Um, you know, and, and, you know, a lot of people, it's just much better bet to be running with cocoa. You can get a higher quality product without being quite as refined as you would with Rockwell. Your, uh, liability to, to failure, having bad product is, is much less, um, it's much smaller when we're using cocoa versus rock wool. And, uh, that's, you know, kind of probably the, the biggest step is we see a lot of people that just aren't ready to push the limits with, with rock wool, or they push the limits too far with rock wool. Uh, whereas with, you know, with that cocoa, it's a little bit easier. I, I always like to you know think about it, like rock will be in the Lamborghini where it's, it can get you somewhere really, really fast. If you take care of it, drive it right. Um, you know, and, and cocoa is going to be more like a, an SUV where you're going to get there for damn sure no matter what you go through, um, maybe not quite as fast, but it's not going to be nearly as, um, as, uh, intensive as far as making sure that the processes are perfect. The old, age old debate, cocoa versus rock wool. We love talking about it. All right, folks. Um, Mandy, I'll send it over to you. What's going on on YouTube. Yeah, thanks to everyone over on YouTube. Um, we did post a poll. We wanted to know, how are you guys managing your irrigation events? Um, so our answers were spreadsheets, open sprinkler, whiteboards, and something else. So no one's really using spreadsheets. Open sprinkler was 29%. 
whiteboards was 14% and something else was was 57%. So that's interesting. Let us know um, what else you guys are using for your drip irrigation out there. Um, we also got some questions. Um, Caesar wrote in, do I feed nutrients daily in cocoa prior to flush? Uh, if, uh, if ripening during ripening or even prior to ripening, I always like to have some amount of nutrients in my fertigation. Uh, you know, there's uh, a lot of, um, older techniques, which, you know, suggested we should go to RO, um, you know, for the last few days. Uh, I, I personally don't like to go quite that far. If in ripening, I do feel like I need to reduce my nutrients. I'll go as low as half or three quarter. Uh, at the very lowest of my nutrients, um, really what it comes down to is what, what is the plant building for sugars, carbohydrates at that point in time? Uh, and, you know, and we're seeing a lot of the nutrient brands right now are coming on to the idea of reducing available nitrogen in this, in the substrate during that, um, that ripening stage. And, uh, you know, it also comes down to that black versus white ash. And I think that's really what people are going for is to try and understand what, what are the causes of a, a harsher smoking plant towards the end. And that's, that's the real goal of where people were coming from when they were flushing. Um, you know, in something like cocoa, yeah, you can get away with uh, a little bit lower nutrients just because it's got a high cation exchange capacity. Um, well, medium, medium cation exchange capacity, something like a organic soil would have a high cation exchange capacity. That's just talking about how well does the substrate hold on to the ions in solution, the nutrients that are in the substrate. And when we look at something like rock wool, you know, if we give it zero or, you know, RO, zero decisiemens per meter uh, on the EC, that, that rock wool is going to plummet in the amount of available nutrients. Uh, cocoa is going to take a little bit longer to get there because of those cation exchange capacity properties that I'm, I'm chatting about here. And, uh, for me, I, I don't like Taro. What about you, Randy? No, we, uh, we don't do that anymore. I know it's been controversial, but I know that, um, uh, a good grower friend of mine originally back a while ago when I was just washing hash for other people, put me onto that kind of fact, right. Or when I got to see it for real, again, one of those science things, bro science things are, you know, there, as I like you said, as well intentioned and some people achieved the actual desired results by flushing with just RO, but there's a better, more scientific way to achieve those senescence, uh, the senescence and results you're looking for. So, um, and it's pretty cool to, to see that, you know, I've, we've been able to, we did start out uh, with our traditional, we opened this facility, we did a two week RO flush and um, got to see what it was like to have a bunch of bud rot in a lot, lot larger benches than we were used to having at home, you know, right? So learn a lot of these things. It was cool to see the big yields and all that type of stuff, but there's, there's, there's a give and a take with that. And you got to find the right balance on how to achieve the end goal. So yeah, there's more than one way to do it, um, but there's some better ways to do it. Just to kind of you know explain maybe why you were seeing some of the bud rot when implementing that is uh, there's kind of two main factors that I think about when uh, pushing with that low of, of nutrient contents or no no nutrient contents and the first is we've got large plants at that point in time they are still metabolizing very quickly and we don't want to starve them uh, anytime that we're starving them it's going to lead to necrotic uh, a little bit of necrosis necrotic sites inside of the bud. And that's going to be the ideal place for molds, mildews, and rots to, to build up. 
Um, the other reason is, you know, if we're building a, you know, thinking about the osmotic differential between the plant and the substrate, anytime that we're screwing with the osmotic differential, we kind of want it to be gradual. And so if we go to, uh, you know, an RO feed one day or a flush or a reset or any of that type of um, parameters, we're going to see a hypotonic relationship. Um, so basically we're dropping to uh, a very, very low amount of nutrients in there and it's going to have a huge um, osmotic differential a huge osmotic pressure on the roots because we've got salt inside of those root cells and then if we have none in the substrate the uh, water is going to try really hard to push into those cells and they're going to expand quite a bit and if you know if you push it too hard there is a, a possibility of rupture my gosh i don't even like saying the word the phrase uh root rot, but um, that was a really good breakdown of how to avoid it or at least understand why it's happening. Ooh, thank you guys for your questions over on YouTube. We are, are getting a lot of thanks for you guys answering the previous questions. So yeah, keep them coming if you guys have questions. Um, but until then, I'll pass it over to you, Keisha. Thank you, Mandy. Bud rot, no. All right. Um, we talked a little bit about white ash and it just so happened that Jacob submitted a couple questions on that topic. So let's go to those. Here's his first one. Can I just hang longer in a climate controlled dry room for an extra week or two and not cure enclosed containers with the burping method? Or is there a process with gas exchange in a closed container that affects the curing process? So that's the first question. Thoughts on that? Uh, you know, this is, this is a great question that I'd love to know more about the science behind it. Um, from practice, you just got to care, uh, you know, having, having it hang up in a room, uh, it's, it's just not going get, to get the, the properties to equalize as you will in a, a container that's burping. What do you think? I know, same thing with you. I'd love to know why, but for some reason. You just got to put it in the bin or in the jar and burp it and uh, give it its time. Um, it's not as easy as just hanging it, you know, it's, we tried similar, we had similar ideas. If you, you would think one room, if it's the same 60, 60, whatever, but it's, there's some different stuff going on there. So. Yes. The science behind curing. We'd love to know more on that. Cool. All right. Um, and then his second question here, what are the biggest factors that contribute to white ash clean, smooth smoke? no chlorophyll taste, curing, et cetera. Yeah. You know, so a lot of, a lot of what we have seen suggests that, you know, the lower nitrogen concentrations towards the end is going to reduce how much um, carbohydrates are in that plant. Um, and then definitely the, the curing phase plays a huge part as well. Making sure that you give the plant long enough for those chlorophylls to break down um, and any of the living action in that plant to, to cease before it's ready for consumption. Yeah, that's another age old question. I have to say, I, maybe I'm just spoiled. I really haven't had any issues with ash color. I do pretty good as a consumer. So, all right. Live questions coming in on YouTube, Mandy, sending it over to you. Yeah. Keisha, that's just your green thumb. You, you, you just had it to begin with. We love that's that. What it is. <laughs> um, Caesar had another question. Why are so many commercial growers only doing nine untopped plants per light? Uh, you know, it depends what light they have. Uh, you know, 
that it it kind of comes down to the conversation, you know, historically where everyone was measuring plants per light or, or grams per light and stuff. And right now there's so many models of light out on the market that for me, it's not a consistent measurement. Um, I, you know, I, I always joke about this, like, you know, I could grow a thousand plants under the light if it's the sun. R- Randy, what do you, what do you think about uh, measuring things by light? Well, same thing. I, I thought you were going to say even just you put a bunch of seedlings on the bench and then you've got, you know, a 500 room there and just flower them out like that. But that's the same idea. It, all, it also is so strain dependent. I know that's the, I, I actually was kind of joking. I'm like, every time we ask a question on a Roy, it ends up being strain dependent. And it is, it's a lot has to, and that's why we do these groupings and we track that data so we can group plants together the way that they grow. But, um, you know, we found you just get certain plants that don't, grow the same way and so you know our super booth we put more plants in than our critical cheese because critical cheese is a bush and it just takes up more bench um so it's all different across every strain and like you said every light every bench layout maybe you have five foot benches you have four foot benches it's hard to standardize any of it now um Um, caesar came back with um hps 1000 watt Very standard light. Yeah. Um, strain dependent and start taking measurements as far as, you know, plants per square foot or plant spacing. And that's going to make it easier to, you know, track and compare when, uh, when you're expanding your facilities or, uh, reaching out, increasing your strain library. Awesome. Great question, Jill. Um, that's it for Vernia tube. So Keisha back for Instagram questions. Thank you, Mandy. I, I'm sorry, I have to ask you this, Randy. What's the terpene profile of critical cheese? I can, um, it, it's not cheese. It's funny. So we actually just got some really awesome results because we got a third. So we make everything into live rosin and we hit um, 13% terpenes on our live rosin of critical cheese this last round, which is really good for solventless, you know, with no, uh, no solvents being used to make that happen. So um, it, I always say it reminds me of like a, fruity cereal bowl. Um, it's super fruit forward for, for the name, um, but it does have some of that funk in it. And the flour definitely has more of a cheesy funk, but you open up either a bag of the flour or the rosin or a bag of our gummies and it will smell like that cheese, but it's like a berry cheese. Um, the terpenes come through. Berries and cheese. Yeah. Yeah. Cereal, you know, cereal bowl, just right. like a good old, yeah. With, with a little cheese, a little funk to it. Yes. Here for it. Awesome. Okay. Thank you for that. That was just for me. All right. Moving on here. Clark wrote in. They want to know what type of a steer should I be doing around week five of flour? I'm hand watering in a three get three gallon cocoa pot. Input around 2.8 to 3.2 EC, pH 5.9 to 6.0. Today is day 36, and I plan on running them 63. For days one through 28, I watered them within the first hour of lights being on. Since then, I have let them dry back harder and watered two hours after lights on. Any advice for Clark? Uh, yeah, you know, hand water, obviously, and we talk about this all the time, is a little bit more challenging just because the flexibility of how you irrigate is limited to um, labor input resources and, and typically however long someone wants to, you know, go do circles around the facility to irrigate those plants. And, um, I, you know, I personally, my first irrigation, I always like to have it between one and two hours after lights on. Um, 
you know, if I'm trying to have a larger dry back, then I'll open up my irrigation window. When you think about hand watering, it's like, all right, maybe when we're generative steering, we'll just do one round uh, around the room to, to irrigate by hand each of those plants and get them up to field capacity. And maybe when I'm doing a little bit of vegetative steering, I'll, I'll do, you know, two rounds or, or three rounds in there with some smaller irrigations to get up to field capacity. Cool. Yeah. Randy, anything to add to that? Sound, sound good to you? Yeah. All right. Cool. All right. Um, burn tires, burn trees left a comment. They wanted to know how long should the roots be in a four by four before transplanting into slab? I have to assume there's a decent root mass in the cube, not dangling out the bottom. What do you guys think? Yeah. Um, that one's a little bit tricky because usually long roots are indicating that we're pushing maybe a little too much runoff, uh, especially in a four by four early on. Uh, traditionally we want to kind of keep those roots in that substrate so that they have access to water, um, while that, while that block has, has water in it. Uh, kind of just my general rule of thumb when I look at the bottom of a four by four, I want to see roots in say 60 to 70% of the, the bottom of that cube. So, you know, if we're thinking of the rock will being kind of a yellowish color, we want to see some amount of, of white hairs in about a little over half to three quarters of that, that block. What works for you, Randy? Yeah, we just actually started using um, four by fours in veg. So we're still doing four by fours in veg and then we put them on a one gallon cocoa pot and flour. Um, and, you know, I was thinking about, it's funny because it I was had kind of that feeling that everybody shows on Instagram there giant roots on the bottom and we didn't have uh, some of that we had and i was like well it's not always a good thing but i was kind of you know feeling inferior that i didn't have the giant udon noodles as they like to say but it is you know it's a it's another balance of you don't want to actually have that because it's because you're running off too much and you have a lot more room for for bad things but i think what you just said i mean same thing with clones right you want to look for something that's got a hefty amount of roots coming out of that that clone medium, just like the same thing on Rockwell before you transplant, um, you want to make sure it's ready to go. Fantastic. Thank you so much for your guys' insight on that. Okay. I had one more question from Jacob. Um, and he's looking for daytime, our advice on daytime and nighttime room temps. Um, what daytime and nighttime room temps are you targeting for LED room, HPS room, an LED slash HPS combo room for each stage of flower. And when do you drop your nighttime temps and increase your diff? I feel like that's kind of a tough question for us to answer, but maybe some considerations for Jacob. What would you guys recommend? Um, strain dependent. And uh, so just the, the most general parameters that I go with is uh, I like to think, and, and it depends on how much anthocyanin that you're pushing. You know, if you, if you're hitting a market that's just absolutely demands the purpling coloring, then you're usually going to go for a little bit larger um, nighttime, daytime temperature differentials. Uh, but I like to try and just think about breaking the cycle into three chunks. Uh, sometimes it's easier to break it into your generative, your vegetative and your ripening. Sometimes it's easier just to do it, uh, you know, three weeks, three weeks and three weeks. But I like to think about usually zero to five degree night day differential for the first third of the flower cycle. Middle third, I'll do usually around five degrees. And then for the last third, I'll be five to 10 degrees. Any other thoughts to add to that, Randy? 
No, we've always shot for the same thing. I think the, the you know, as I think it's Seth is always saying that 10 degree differential is actually really tough to hit if you're watching your humidity as well, right? Unless you have like an amazing HVAC system with a lot of the here, which you should have um, if you if you can do it right, if you're, if you're able to. But that's the hardest part is, is knowing you just kind of work with what you can. We always shoot for that 10 degree diff, probably 80 air temperature of like 83 degrees to 80 degrees during the middle of flower for our LED rooms. And then we're low, we're still 75 to 80 degrees for later flower, but then we have a differential at night. Um, and you know, like with the last couple of days, we might just cut the room down completely to be nice and chill, but that's also because we're harvesting for fresh frozen. So we like everything to be nice and cold, uh, the whole process. Cool. Yeah, it's great to have your insights too, because you are dealing with you're making you're making some concentrates over there too. So yeah, you got a lot going on. All right, uh, Mandy. In these last minute, I'm going to send it over to you. What's going on on YouTube? Um, yeah, what a great time over on YouTube. Thanks everyone for your questions and thanks for answering our poll. We love everything that you guys um, submitted this week. I guess that's it for us over on YouTube. Uh, I am just grateful to have Randy on the show. I was part of his case study and got to visit his facility and meet his team last year. Um, he's a really amazing cultivator who's growing fire tree up there that he then turns into amazing hash. So uh, and I can't stop talking about it but um we got to have him back on the show and yeah it was such a great show thank you randy for being here with us today yeah thank you so much and thank you for the case study too it was amazing like i guess i'm not kidding it makes makes me and my wife uh, tear up each time we watch the video so we're really yeah. excited about it it's awesome fantastic well yeah no we have with any anything you want to tell us about coming down in the immediate future randy keep what should we keep our eyes out for Always pheno hunting. We've got, um, you know, we're continuing our hash hunt. So we're going to introduce some new strains like strawberry guava and melted strawberries, and alpine guava, some exciting stuff. And we're going to have everything in live rosin grams, vape carts, and edibles. It's kind of cool. We, we really carry that terpene profile all the way from the harvest to the edible. It's really neat. I just, I got to try out our uh, raspberry cheesecake critical cheese gummies this morning today um so we really go for it you know with that cheese and it's a raspberry cheesecake flavored and that's what we're doing we're just trying to make people uh, have a good time while they're getting high uh, on on hash so you live a good life my friend thank you so much <laughs> randy wentzel facility director and owner of calicory farms in maine thank you so much for coming on the show thank you jason for leading and hosting another great session mandy thank you for being my partner in moderation or moderating rather and producer chris thank you for all you're doing in the background there thanks to everybody who joined us for this week's arroyo office hours we do this every thursday and the best way to get answers from the experts is to join us live to learn more about arroyo feel free to book a demo with us and one of our experts will tell you about all the different ways it can be used to improve your cultivation process as always if there's a topic you'd like covered in a future episode of office hours post questions anytime via the Roya app feel free to drop them in a chat send us an email to support.arroya at metergroup.com or send us a dm we are on all the socials we record every session we'll email everybody in attendance a link to today's uh, episode and it'll also live on the Arroyo YouTube channel. Like, subscribe, and share while you're there. And if you find these conversations helpful, spread the word. Thank you so much. We'll see you next time. Bye.
Office Hours Live is brought to you by Arroyo, the ultimate cultivation platform. Unlock the power of crop steering through our state-of-the-art sensors and software. Repeat successful runs and scale faster than ever before. Schedule a demo today at arroyo.io.